From Regina's statement, it was apparent that there was indeed substance to Mark's claims that he was part of a bigger, organized pedophile network. And in a disturbing twist, it was also revealed that the judge who had oversight of the investigation into Christine's murder was none other than Judge Van Espen himself. Welcome, listener. I'm glad you're here. Take a seat next to the fire. Unfortunately for Flemish-speaking Regina and the French-speaking investigators who took her statements, including the former police chief, accusations were made that the statements were embellished during the translation. This resulted in many others being implicated and the net of suspects in the alleged pedophile ring widening. Never mind that another witness known as X3 told investigators that one of the many senior Belgian identities present at these orgies and torture sessions was a former Secretary General of NATO, a man who had earlier resigned after being found guilty in an unrelated corruption scandal involving military contracts. When the preliminary findings of the Dutroux Commission were released in March 1997, both the Belgian Ministry of Justice and the National Gendarmerie were criticized heavily for their ineptitude and incompetence over the investigation of the disappearances of Julie, Melissa, Anne, Ifji, Sabine, and Letitia. The scathing outcome resulted in the officers who had interviewed Regina being replaced, based on the determination that her evidence had been manipulated to implicate other suspects. The former police chief and his team strongly denied the accusations. Their intentions to do their job to the best of their ability and get to the truth only saw them placed on indefinite leave for their trouble. Regina's credibility, too, was destroyed. She was dismissed by the new investigative team as an attention seeker and an unreliable witness who was only out to defame people in return for fleeting publicity. It was decided that none of Regina's evidence would be admitted at trial and would remain suppressed. Meanwhile, a man who had only been released from prison a month before and was known to have connections to Mark and Bernard was found murdered in Brussels. In early April 1997, the parliamentary inquiry noted in a progress report that the national gendarmerie were, quote, inhumane, inept, inefficient, and ill-equipped. The final report released later that month recommended that the current model of policing across Belgium be reformed and consolidated. It also recommended the implementation of new protocols when it came to investigating missing persons, as well as a large-scale overhaul of the criminal justice system. Thankfully, the Belgian parliament adopted these recommendations, 
but the commission's work wasn't over yet by a long shot. The next stage of the inquiry was to determine whether Mark had been engaging in his perverted activities under the protection of key Belgian figures in law enforcement and justice. That same month, a man contacted a Belgian newspaper claiming to have information about Mark. The man was due to make a statement to police, but two days before this scheduled meeting, he was found dead. The man was an asthmatic, and his inhaler was later found to contain rohypnol. But strangely, no autopsy was carried out to determine the cause of death. By February 1998, the investigation into the nature of Mark's connections with the Belgian elite, if any, were concluded. The committee found that while there was no evidence to substantiate the allegations made by Mark and other witnesses that he was well-connected, there was no question that he benefited from a systemic level of police incompetence and corruption. In short, there were simply too many mistakes during the investigation into the disappearances from 1995 to 1996 for every single error to be genuine. Meanwhile, Mark's defense team had mounted an argument that their client should be released. They claimed that the delay in the case going to trial was a breach of the European Convention on Human Rights. Two months later in April, 41-year-old Mark was escorted to a courthouse where he was permitted to review his case files in preparation for the trial. He was accompanied by two police officers, but when one went on a break, Mark overpowered the other officer, stole his gun, and escaped in a stolen car. He was captured a few hours later, thankfully having only made it a 20-minute drive away. But the damage was done. The whole fiasco was so deeply humiliating that there was no choice for senior officials like the Minister of Justice, the Minister of the Interior, and the police chief to all resign. Potential witnesses continued to turn up dead. In April 1998, the body of a 60-year-old woman was found dumped in a Belgian river. She had been beaten and strangled. The woman had previously contacted police with information about a vehicle smuggling ring and associated child trafficking. That same month, Newell's dentist was found dead in her home from an apparent suicide. She had been lined up as a prosecution witness. In 1998, there was another revelation which again brought the judge's integrity into question. It came to light that Judge Van Espen did in fact have a close connection to Michelle Newell. Before Van Espen had become a judge, he represented Newell's wife in court in an unrelated matter. However, he'd failed to disclose this relationship when he took over the investigation of the Dutroux case. The hypocrisy of his actions wasn't lost on the Belgian public and the families. When their beloved Judge Connerat had been so publicly ousted all because he attended a fundraiser. This latest development made Judge Van Espen's position in continuing to preside over the case untenable, and he resigned. He was replaced by Judge Jacques Langlois. But 1998 did bring some encouraging news. Parole criteria for convicted sex offenders were finally tightened in response to the parliamentary recommendations. But the mysterious deaths of those with information for investigators didn't abate. In November 1998, a social worker who specialized in protecting child sex abuse survivors had made a connection between smaller Belgian and Swiss child trafficking rings. The woman was understood to have disclosed to friends that she viewed a videotape of child pornography and child murder. On the tape, she recognized a man who was an associate of Michelle Neul. Not long after disclosing this to her friends, 
the woman claimed she started receiving death threats. Undeterred, she reported this to police. But tragically, only a few days later, the woman died after her vehicle collided with a bridge at a speed of 80 kilometers. The following month, the widow of the man who had been poisoned before he was able to speak to the police about his knowledge of Mark's activities was found dead in her home. Following her husband's death, the woman had discovered documents belonging to her husband, which were valuable to the investigation. Her death was ruled a suicide, despite the circumstance being particularly gruesome. The woman's bedroom had been doused in accelerant, and she had been set on fire. And then, another scandal broke. In 1999, the chief prosecutor announced that all the videotapes seized by Officer Michaud during the two searches of Mark's Marcinelle home in 1995 would be scrutinized. When investigators watched the tapes, even they were horrified. Not just at the content, but the magnitude of what Officer Michaud had missed. In one tape, Mark could be seen building the cellar dungeon and ventilation system in Marcinelle. In another, he could clearly be seen raping a young woman. The tape confirmed that the incident had occurred in Slovakia in 1995. The tapes also included a TV segment recorded of the families of the victims making public appeals for their return. Yet despite Marshaux's gross incompetence, he hadn't been taken off the investigating team. In fact, he would later go on to receive a promotion to the high-profile position of police commissioner, 1999 was also the year that the former police chief and his team, who had investigated Regina Loof's allegations and been placed on indefinite leave, were publicly cleared of any blame in manipulating Regina's statements. The officers also won a defamation lawsuit, which saw a major Belgian newspaper forced to pay the equivalent of $55,000 plus costs. But sadly, it was too late for the officers' careers by this stage. They had been somewhat vindicated by the former head of the parliamentary inquiry, who later launched scathing criticism against the inquiry process. He also claimed that the proceedings were stifled and compromised by the lack of cooperation and corruption of those in senior legal and law enforcement positions. We'll never know whether that allegation extended to the senior public prosecutor at the time. In July 1999, he took his own life, shooting himself in his home office following a meeting with the justice minister. The following month, the Brussels police inspector, who also took his own life after being originally tasked with investigating Regina Loof's allegations about sex parties organized by Niol. On the 15th of December, 1999, no one was surprised when Nihul was conditionally released due to a lack of evidence on his conspiracy charges. Six months later, in June 2000, Mark received a five-year prison sentence for threatening a police officer during his previous escape. Mark admitted to escaping from custody, but claimed it was necessary to be able to explain his side of the story to the media. Following the incident, Mark was kept in solitary confinement and subjected to regular cavity searches. But in February 2001, he appeared in court, claiming that these security protocols were a violation of his human rights. As a result, his trial was postponed yet again, and the parents of the victims and survivors, as well as the Belgian public, were irate. To them, the continued delays were further proof of high-level corruption amongst the police and Belgian legal system. And Marshall's father, Paul, told the Telegraph newspaper, quote, 
It feels like they don't want to find the truth. It is not a good feeling, and not only I think this. Suspicion continued to grow after the April 2001 death of a man who was known to be one of Mark's associates. The man was believed to have been about to give investigators information about key contacts in an alleged pedophile ring when he died in a vehicle accident. Other potential witnesses who lost their lives in 2001 included a filmmaker who dealt in child pornography. Investigators called the man in to give a statement about his alleged involvement with Mark, but on the way there, the man's vehicle slammed into a building, killing him. An associate of Nihul's who ran a bar also died not long after. It was a year later in March 2002 when Judge Langlois completed his component of the investigation. When it came to some of the forensic evidence, it was clear there had been problems right from the very beginning of the police investigation. Melissa Russo's autopsy report showed that the eight-year-old had been raped repeatedly in the weeks before she died. But Mark had still been in jail at that point, and this scenario contradicted his account. If it wasn't him who raped Melissa, who was it? It also emerged that Melissa's parents had not been permitted to identify their daughter's body following the exhumation. They were told by authorities that in accordance with Belgian protocols at the time, Mark had identified Melissa, and that was sufficient. There were reports that despite the chief prosecutor's pleas for the thousands of human hairs found in the cellar dungeon to be analyzed for DNA, this still hadn't happened, even six years after the fact. This testing would be crucial to determine whether others were involved aside from Mark. However, the general prosecutor of the case rejected this entire hypothesis. She claimed that there was no evidence anyone else had been in the cellar dungeon, and therefore it wasn't necessary to test the hair samples. Not long afterwards, the general prosecutor backflipped, telling reporter Olenka Frankel of the BBC that the hairs in fact had been analyzed. Mark had always denied raping Melissa and Julie, but reports emerged that no DNA evidence had been retained during Melissa's autopsy to prove that she'd been raped by Mark. The general prosecutor clarified that DNA analysis had been conducted on Melissa and Julie's bodies, but claimed that due to the advanced state of decomposition, nothing of any solid evidentiary value could be gathered. There was one problem with this assertion. It wasn't entirely true. The autopsy report specifically noted that Julie and Melissa's bodies weren't heavily decomposed. The plot thickened. According to the Irish Times newspaper, as more complaints were raised about the ongoing delays in the matter going to trial, the court's only response was that given the sheer volume of documentation and potential witness list of over 500 people, the judicial system first had to hear other less serious matters linked to the case in order to avoid a possible mistrial. In mid-January 2003, it was announced that 61-year-old Michelle Nihul would not be prosecuted. The chief prosecutor appealed this decision, and in May, the determination was overturned. The charges against Nihul would proceed. Meanwhile, while still awaiting trial, Mark and Michelle divorced. But Mark wouldn't stay out of the headlines for long. In November 2003, it emerged that between 1996 and 1998, he had exchanged around 300 letters with a 17-year-old girl who'd been writing to him. According to Belgian law, Mark hadn't technically committed a crime. As impossible as it was to believe, despite the heinous acts he'd been charged with committing, 
Mark had been free to send and receive correspondence with anyone, discussing anything he liked. Almost eight years after the arrests of 47-year-old Mark, his 45-year-old ex-wife Michelle Martin, and 32-year-old accomplice Lelievre, the trial for the murders of Julie, Melissa, Ann, Ifji, and Bernard commenced on the 1st of March, 2004. The trio would have to answer to 243 counts in total. The charges included vehicle theft, abduction, attempted murder, and attempted abduction, molestation, and three additional unrelated rapes of women in Slovakia. So concerned were authorities for the accused's safety that the trio appeared in court seated behind protective glass. Emotions amongst the families of the victims and survivors were understandably running high. This was to the point that some families boycotted the trial out of their ongoing outrage behind the dismissal of Judge Connerot. He was the only judge the families felt had their loved one's best interests at heart, and who had been dedicated to investigating Mark's and Regina's allegations of a wider child sex trafficking ring. Early in the trial, Judge Connerot appeared to give evidence— Clearly emotional at times, he recounted how he himself received threats to his life over his pursuit of the truth, despite having received documents detailing child abductions outside Belgium and the prices involved in trafficking. The death threats were so serious and came from such powerful figures in European organized crime that Conorat had to engage bodyguards to escort him everywhere. The police themselves substantiated these threats having advised Conorat to take precautions in response to contracts out on members of the judiciary investigating the case. During his testimony, Conorat was outspoken about the gross incompetence of law enforcement in failing to rescue Julie and Melissa during the searches of Mark's Marcinel property in December 1995. He was also critical of the failure of police to investigate Mark in any meaningful way, despite him having been a suspect from the time the girls disappeared. The court heard that based purely on the amount of food and water that Mark and Michelle claimed was provided to the girls, it would have been impossible for Julie and Melissa to have survived in the cellar dungeon for the duration of Mark's prison sentence. Mark told the court that he did indeed keep Julie and Melissa at one of his many properties, but denied raping them. His explanation was that he, quote, found the girls near his home and decided it was safer to keep them in the basement where he could, quote, protect them from the child sex trafficking network run by Neul, who orchestrated the abductions. Neul's lawyer rejected all allegations Mark made against his client, calling him, quote, a liar and manipulator. Mark testified that at no stage did he rape Julie and Melissa, and this claim was substantiated by psychiatric assessments conducted following Mark's arrest in 1996. Mark denied murdering Julie and Melissa, testifying that by the time he was released from prison in early 1996, both girls were dead. But Michelle claimed that when Mark returned home from prison, both girls were still alive. Mark had initially denied murdering Ann, Ifya, and Bernard, but he admitted to abducting, drugging, raping, and torturing the teens and burying Bernard alive for, quote, letting the girls die. Mark claimed that two police officers, whom he refused to identify, had been accomplices in the abduction of Anne and Ifyi. Mark openly admitted to having constructed the crude dungeon in his cellar where he kept his victims, boasting, quote, I wanted to create a hiding place to spare them from being sent to a prostitution ring. Mark also admitted to kidnapping and repeatedly raping Sabine and Letitia, 
claiming he didn't hand them over to Michelle Nihul. Quote, To spare them the fate of Anne and Ifye. But Mark denied that he was a pedophile. While it's easy to dismiss his denial of the motivation for his terrible actions, mental health professionals who evaluated Mark formed the view that he couldn't necessarily be described as a pedophile in the typical sense, taking into account the broad age range of his victims and survivors. Indeed, one of his previous victims had been a woman aged in her 50s. There was no question he was a child sexual abuser and murderer, but the idea was put forward that Mark's primary motivation was money, as a trafficker. Looking at the victimology in an academic sense, it was suggested that Mark took to abducting girls and teenagers as opposed to women, because younger victims were easier to manipulate and control. The court heard that the failure of police to review the videos they seized in late 1995, it couldn't be proven that Mark acted alone. The defense told the court that out of the 6,000 hair samples found in the cellar, 25 additional unidentified DNA profiles were found, claiming that these belonged to others who were responsible for the crimes. Astoundingly, at no stage had the prosecution attempted to match the profiles to others whom Mark had implicated. Mark's legal team also stated that evidence of the cult involved in alleged human sacrifice wasn't investigated by the prosecution citing a letter found in Bernard's house. The correspondence was said to have been sent by the cult and contained details of gifting 17 girls and young women aged between 2 and 20 to the sect, who would use them for numerous types of sexual acts. Mark's ex-wife Michelle told the court that as far back as the mid-1980s, Mark had decided he was going to start abducting young girls, saying, quote, I remember Mark blaming me for the first series of kidnappings in 1985, that I was responsible for not being able to pick up as many women as he had wanted. He felt that other women were less interested in him because he lived with me. I remember that during that time we even slept separately for a while. It was at this time that Mark told me he intended to kidnap girls. He told me kidnapping and raping took less time than hitting them. He said that would be in my favor too. That way he had more time to spend with me. And because he did it all for me after all, I had to help him with the kidnappings. Michelle went on to testify that Mark told her it was, quote, easier for him to abduct and rape young women rather than having extramarital affairs. Michelle claimed that Mark presented this sordid proposal as something which would ultimately benefit Michelle. If Mark had a young girl locked up in the cellar dungeon who was essentially at his disposal, he'd have more time available to spend with Michelle at home and not be out looking for adult women to have affairs with. Michelle told the court that Mark used this rationale to manipulate her into participating in the abductions. While the shocking evidence was being heard in court, it emerged only a couple of weeks after the trial had commenced that a key to a pair of handcuffs had been found hidden in a cupboard near Mark's prison cell. The air of suspicion around Belgian government authorities, including the prison system, was brought further under the microscope when it was revealed that the keys fit Mark's handcuffs. However, there was nothing to indicate how or why such a breach of security had occurred. Around six weeks into the trial, it was finally time for Sabine Dardenne and Letitia Delhez to give their evidence. When 20-year-old Sabine asked Mark why he didn't just kill her, her former captor replied, quote, It was never my intention to harm her in any way. Sabine's evidence was difficult for her family to hear, as she'd made the choice following her rescue not to share any details with her parents of the brutal treatment she'd endured at Mark's hands. Following her return home 
Sabine also has to deal with the pain of her parents divorcing. Sabine told the court that during her captivity, the only man she ever saw was Mark. Despite hearing multiple male voices on the other side of the cellar door on numerous occasions, this evidence appeared to substantiate Mark's claims that he was in fact part of a larger child sex abuse ring. When 22-year-old Letitia took the stand, the horror of what all of Mark's victims had endured really hit home. Letitia's mother had attended court to support her daughter, but the impact of Letitia's revelations became too much at one point, and her mother fainted. In order to get a true sense of what life in the dungeon had been like for Mark's victims, as well as Sabine and Letitia, the two survivors, along with those involved in the trial, visited Mark's Marcinel property in late April to get a sense of the depraved conditions in which the young women had been imprisoned. Around six weeks later, on the 14th of June, after hearing evidence from around 450 witnesses, the jury retired to consider the verdicts. After three days of deliberation, 47-year-old Mark was found guilty of kidnapping and raping Julie, Melissa, Anne, Ifji, Sabine, and Letitia. Both he and Michelle were also found guilty of murdering Anne, Ifji, and Bernard. Leliev was found guilty of kidnapping but not rape or murder. However, when it came to Michelle Neul, the jury were unable to reach a verdict on the exact nature of his role, and he was found not guilty. However, he did receive convictions for drug-related offenses, dealing in stolen vehicles, forging documents, criminal conspiracy, and human trafficking. Outside court, Anne's father Paul told a local TV station, quote, I am happy. They are guilty for everything that they have done. Less than a week later, sentences were handed down. Michelle Nihul was sentenced to five years in jail, but in a cruel twist of fate for a large swath of the Belgian public who demanded nothing less than the death penalty for Mark. This had been abolished in Belgium in 1996, the same year he was arrested. Mark was sentenced to life imprisonment with an additional 10 years, while Michelle received 30 years and Liliever 25 years. The following day, Mark appealed the severity of his sentence, but six months later in December 2004, this was dismissed by the court. It was a bittersweet time in the life of Sabine Darden. While her abuser would remain in jail, her mother had only passed away a month previously, and Sabine became estranged from her father shortly thereafter. Less than two years after his conviction, Michel Neul was released early in May 2006. He had served less than two years of his five-year sentence. A year later, the European Court of Human Rights ordered Belgium to pay 6,000 euros in damages to Lelièvre. This was on the basis that he had been detained for an unreasonably long period of time before the trial commenced, a total of eight years. Thankfully, Lelièvre wasn't to see a cent of the money, with the proceeds going to the victim's families and Sabine and Letitia. In April 2007, Michelle Martin requested to be released on a conditional basis, but her submission was rejected based on the seriousness of the offenses of which she'd been convicted and the court's view that she remained a danger to the community. Michelle sought early release again in 2008, but this application too was rejected. 2009 saw the release of information into the public domain that appeared to bolster Mark's original claims that he was a pawn in a larger pedophile ring. According to the Australian newspaper, documents entitled The Dutroux Dossier were published on the WikiLeaks website. 
The documents revealed that Michelle received large deposits from different countries as far afield as North Africa and the Middle East into her bank account. What made it compelling reading was the fact that the dates of the transactions appeared to correspond closely with the dates of the abductions, as well as amounts Mark had paid over the years for the numerous properties he purchased. Belgian authorities were extremely unhappy with the information being published and attempted to have it removed from the WikiLeaks site, but without success. Mark's house in Sar-la-Buissière, where the bodies of Julie, Melissa, and Bernard were found buried in the garden, was bought by the local municipality in early 2009. There were plans to convert the land into a park, including a memorial, to commemorate the victims. Similarly, the local government of Charleroi seized ownership of Mark's house in Marcinelle for 23,000 euros, which they too intended on raising and replacing with an open space. The money earned from the sale of the home went to a fund intending to provide compensation for the victims and their families. The property in Jumet, where Anne and Effier's remains were found buried in the garden and was afterwards set alight in an arson attack, has since been demolished. In May 2010, it was decided that in the absence of any evidence to the contrary, no further investigation would be conducted into allegations that Michelle Nihul was involved in child sex trafficking. Two years later in 2012, the decision was made to release 52-year-old Michelle Martin conditionally. However, this was understandably met with outrage on the part of the victims' families and the Belgian people. Julie Lejeune's father spoke to the Belgian media of his views on Michelle, saying, quote, I have a deep rage. For me, she's worse than Dutroux. Don't forget she had multiple opportunities to free them. She didn't do it. Her role has been minimized. The backlash resulted in another public demonstration organized by Letitia and the Lejeune and Marshall families protesting Michelle's conditional release. But their efforts were in vain. In late August, having served 16 years of her 30-year sentence, Michelle was released from prison and went to live with an order of nuns in a monastery in Moulot in the south of Belgium. The monastery made it clear that they had no responsibility for Michelle, and that while she was living there, she was in no way connected to their order. She would be welcomed there only as long as she adhered to her parole conditions. A month later, having given further consideration to the sentiment behind the emotionally charged protest leading up to Michelle's release, the Belgian government decided to tighten the regulations around conditional release for offenders. Only five months later, in February 2013, Mark applied to be conditionally released on the basis that he wear an ankle monitor. However, his legal team wasn't confident this would be granted. According to Belgian newspaper Standard, Mark's lawyer felt he had no sense of remorse or guilt. Despite Mark's insistence that he was no longer a danger to the community, his mother Janine told Belgian newspaper Le Soir that she believed he would re-offend if he was released, saying, quote, I am certain he will start again. Mark isn't ready to be released because he still wants to attribute to others the responsibility for what he did. He is a power-hungry man without scruples and without pity. Thankfully, Mark's application was denied. So was Michel Leliev's application for parole. In 2014, it was reported by Dutch newspaper Aljamine Dagblad that Michel was studying law at university. When the convent in Malone, where she was living, was sold that same year, Michel had to find new suitable accommodation or face returning to prison. A former judge took pity on her and was said to have offered her an apartment in his converted farmhouse. In mid-2018, 
the news broke that Mark had written to his victims' families, offering to answer their questions about what had happened to their daughters and why, but his offer was rebuffed. According to Sky News, Ifu's father Jean labeled it nothing more than a publicity stunt, while Julie's father described it as, quote, moral torture. A year later, in October 2019, Liliev was granted conditional release, having served 23 years of his 25-year sentence. With two of the three parties responsible now released from prison, the Belgian public rallied to protest Liliev's conditional release, as well as any prospect of Mark's conditional release. On the 23rd anniversary of the original White March, a Black March was organized. As it so happened, by this time, 62-year-old Mark had filed a submission to be examined by a psychiatrist with a view to being conditionally released. However, for this to be approved, not just one but three psychiatrists would need to conclude that the risk of Mark reoffending would be low and that he was capable of being rehabilitated. On the 23rd of October, Michelle Nihul died, age 78. Mark's pre-parole hearing was on track to be heard when it was delayed in May 2020 as a result of the global COVID-19 pandemic. He is currently held in solitary confinement. The resulting negative publicity about the Dutroux case culminated in the European Parliament openly discussing child sexual abuse and trafficking. One outcome was the Daphne Project, a collaborative multinational investigative initiative of journalists from major news outlets working to expose trafficking and violence against women. But the pain for the families of the victims endures. There is much they have missed out on by having their daughters and sisters snatched away. In the years immediately following the trial, Julie Russo's brother, Maxime, told Belgian newspaper Zore Lemieux, quote, I didn't have time to get to know my sister. I didn't miss her, but it would still have been better to have one. I was alone all these years, and I was often bored at the house. Julie's mother, Corinne, also decided to use her platform to agitate for change in the Belgian legal system, becoming a senator in the hope of exercising political influence. You may have noticed that throughout our story, quite a number of people passed away during the protracted investigation, many of them under suspicious circumstances around the time they were due to give evidence. A total of over 20 unexplained deaths are linked to the Dutroux investigation, but no further inquiries were made regarding what this could mean for the administration of justice in Belgium on a larger scale, when in cases where such damning allegations are made, allegations that have the potential to bring down the most powerful people in the country. Sabine Dardenne has since written a book about her experience entitled, I Choose to Live. The memoir details her life leading up to her abduction, her ordeal in Mark's dungeon, and life after her rescue. Sadly, unlike Letitia, Sabine wasn't close to her mother, writing in her book, quote, There was a great void between us. She never said anything to me, at least not things that mattered, like that she loved me. Maybe that's why I talk so much and have so many friends. I couldn't talk to my mother anyway. I hated that my mother constantly ignored or belittled me. Initially, I was overly protected and then everything went as before. Melissa Russo's mother, Corrine, also released a book documenting her experiences from the day her daughter went missing. Entitled 14 Months, the book features letters Corrine wrote to Melissa during the time she was abducted, up until her body was discovered. Like Sabine's account, the book searches for meaning in something which in many ways has no explanation, yet has forever changed the lives of those close to the gruesome case. 
Like other coverage on the case, it brought to light the large-scale incompetence of many individuals tasked with bringing Mark Dutroux to justice. It also raises more questions to which we may never get the answers. Questions about why key institutions didn't function appropriately in the first place in order to stamp out corruption and organized crime at the highest echelons of Belgian governance. If they had, the lives of six families would likely be very different today. Listener, circling back to the various conveniently dead witnesses in this case, for that I leave the guesswork to you. Though, if you ever find yourself in Belgium, it may be best that you don't utter the name Mark Dutroux, lest your vacation be cut short. Thank you for listening, and keep the fire burning.